0: <laughs> well, good morning, family, and it's good to be with you all this morning, and uh, we are in, <coughs> excuse me, our third Sunday of Eastertide, and so we're continuing to talk about the resurrection, and we're continuing to talk about the empty tomb, and I want to our a passage this morning I'm going to continue reading. Scott read last week out of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm going to pick up with that. Uh, we'll just read a few verses of that, and then we'll talk about that for a while. Now, if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now if Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep, for since by a man came death, by a man, uh, <clears throat> by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then after, those, after that, those who are in Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is expected who will put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Did you catch all that? <laughs> That's Paul. Uh, sometimes Paul gets a little bit hard for us to follow, <clears throat> but the point I think we get there, is the resurrection. And if it didn't happen, then what are we doing here? What are we doing? And why make such a big deal about the resurrection? Because doesn't that seem like the most implausible part of our whole faith? That there is a dead guy in a tomb, and then on his own, without any help from anybody else, not a magic trick, he got up, the stone was rolled away, and the tomb was empty. That is, is probably the most implausible tenet of our entire faith. And, and here's Paul in 1 Corinthians saying, if that didn't happen, we are wasting our time. We are wasting our time. <clears throat> and I think part of it may have to do with, the, with how you define the fundamental problem that we have. If the problem if our fundamental problem is simply that we are not good enough and that Jesus came to just make bad people good, then we we don't need the resurrection, do we? It's 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 expendable to us at that point. Because all we need is some nice platitudes and some nice teachings from Jesus about how we're to treat others and things like that and we can just go about the business of being better people. So if the fundamental problem is that that Jesus came to make bad people good, or even not-so-good people better people, however you want to look at it, then we don't need the resurrection. But if Jesus came to make broken people whole, well, that's a different story. If the fundamental problem is that we are broken, and that we are incomplete, then something needs to happen to make that complete. The resurrection is an extremely difficult teaching. I won't make light of that. And even in the early church, it was difficult, right? I mean, the passage we just read from Paul, this is 1 Corinthians, is one of the very first letters Paul wrote, probably written no later than about A.D. 52. So within 20 years or so of Jesus' death and resurrection this is when this is being written. And even then, Paul is saying, why are some of you saying there is no resurrection from the dead? So it was difficult, even for those who saw it happen. <laughs> so we, keep, we shouldn't make light of the fact that this is a difficult teaching. But what I'm going to walk through with us today is is three things. I think that it is absolutely essential theologically. And I think it is reliable in that it is historically credible. And I think it is available, meaning that it is is practically transformative, even today. So it's essential, it's reliable, and it's available. It's essential in that Again, defining the problem as broken, brokenness, not badness or goodness. The, the blood sacrifice was established. Do you remember where the, when the first blood sacrifice happened in the Bible? This is your trivia question for the morning. You can Feel free to answer at home if you think you know the answer to this. When was the first blood sacrifice in the Bible? You can even just give me a book of the Bible that we can start with that. Genesis. Jesus at the garden, at the fall. There are some who would tell you that, that the blood sacrifice was instituted by man as man's way of trying to reach back to God. But if you read the story of the fall, and you read the story in the garden, after they bit the apple, after they realized that they were naked, after they became ashamed for what they had done, and the Lord was moving through the garden, it was the Lord that covered them with animal skins. That's what it says. It says that the Lord covered them with animal skins. The blood sacrifice was instituted by God to say this must be done to cover your sins. And it became more formalized later, right? We, we can read through Leviticus and in the, the law and it became very rigid and formalized. But it must happen. There must be a sacrifice to cover up the nakedness, to cover up the brokenness that had happened in the garden. But the sacrifice was temporary and insufficient, right? That's why it had to be done over and over. That's how it became ritualized, is it wasn't enough. It had to be done over and over and over and over. And so the physical death of the animal represented the spiritual death of the people. And so this had to be done over and over and over and over. And Christ's death, obviously, was necessary. But as with the death of the animals, his death alone is insufficient and incomplete. And I don't mean that it was insufficient and that it wasn't enough to cover for our sins. I don't mean that. What I mean was, or is, without the empty tomb, his death loses the power to be the ultimate sacrifice for our sins it would just have perpetuated the cycle of needing to do this over and over and over again. Without the empty tomb, the cross loses its power. And because, But because we have the empty tomb, the resurrection brings triumph and hope, right? We don't have to keep doing this. We don't have to keep this system going where we're sacrificing the animals all the time because now we have hope. Now we have a sufficient sacrifice. Why? Because the bonds of the, the, the slavery to the sin, which remember even Paul writes that the law was the, the power of sin, right? The Old Testament law, those bonds were broken by the empty tomb. They were broken by the empty tomb. If there is no resurrection, then there is no hope. The problem with this, right, is that it's it, there. There are a whole. There's a whole branch of so-called biblical scholarship dedicated to disproving that this actually happened. Uh, there's a. Uh, if I were to ask you what you thought the the biggest threat intellectually and theologically was to our faith in our time, what what would you think it would be? Just think through that. You know, there's a lot of other isms out there, right? You know what's the ism that's the biggest threat to our faith? And you know maybe you're thinking of Islam, maybe you're thinking of Buddhism, maybe you're thinking of some of the Eastern religions and philosophies. I would suggest to you this morning that the greatest threat to our faith is not any of those. The greatest threat to our faith is naturalism. The idea that the physical world is sufficient to explain itself with no other outside information. The idea that if you can't see it, taste it, touch it, hear it, feel it, it doesn't exist. The idea that there is no supernatural. There is only the natural, and this is all we've got. That is the great challenge to our faith because we are, for two reasons. One, it is the complete antithesis of what we believe, right? The complete antithesis of what we believe. But it's also the great challenge because we are really comfortable with it. We are really comfortable with naturalism. And it has crept its way into our faith. And that's why when we read things in the Bible that are... miraculous When we read things like the empty tomb we go well i don't know you know maybe i don't know and we question that not because of what we know of jesus we question that because of naturalism (laughs) and the idea that we've been taught in our culture in our schools for 150 years that we don't need anything but the natural world to explain it and if it's not explainable through the scientific method It simply doesn't exist or didn't happen. Well, there's really no evidence to support that. (laughs) It is a philosophy. But it is a philosophy that cloaks itself in things like science to say, well, if you're not performing naturalism, it can't be science. And there are a whole host of scientists over the years that would disagree with that. People like Isaac Newton, Blaise Pascal, some other names that we all get taught in school would take serious issue with that. Nonetheless, naturalism tells us that this can't have happened because dead things don't come back to life. When you're dead, you're dead. You turn into worm dirt. It's over. There is no other. That's what we're taught from naturalism. But yet first and I, there's a book that I read one time, a very thick book, hundreds of pages long, about it, with a guy that has a bunch of initials after his name that wrote this book talking about the the myth of the resurrection. And the storyline goes like this, and this is very popular even within Christian seminaries. But the storyline goes something like this, that if you read the gospel accounts in a supposed chronological order, which this author and, and others would put forth as Mark was written first, then Matthew was written, then Luke, and last John. Let's just grant that for the sake of argument. You can quibble with it if you want. It really doesn't matter. If you read the resurrection accounts, starting with Mark, going to Matthew, then Luke, then John, what you see, and the theory is, you see this developing story, right? So with Mark, we're left with the empty tomb. That's it. That's all we have in Mark. The the tomb is empty. Well, then you read Matthew, and we've got the empty tomb, and Jesus shows up to a handful of people and And that were there, and then that 's it and then, if you read luke well it 's the it 's the empty tomb, and it 's a handful of people, and it 's his close followers and and it's some, some more people are brought into the into the picture and then if you read john he 's hanging out on the beach, having fish with people and there's a and so there 's this the, the, the theory is the story is the, the further the story gets from the actual event, the more elaborate it becomes, and the more mythologized it becomes and nobody in the first church really believed any of this that's the theory and it sounds pretty plausible right i mean if that's if that chronological order of the gospels is accurate that seems pretty plausible and we all know the old game of telephone that the farther away you get from the source of the information the less accurate it tends to become right But there's a problem with that, and there's a problem with that in 1 Corinthians. And this thick book, hundreds of pages long, that I read by this really smart guy that was really convinced that he had the answer on the resurrection, not one single time in that entire hundreds of pages long volume did he address what I think is the most crucial passage in all scripture about the resurrection. It's in 1 Corinthians 15, and Scott read it last week. We'll back up to verse 3 in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. So Paul's saying, this isn't something that I just made up. This is what I was taught. Now remember, 1 Corinthians, even the most critical scholars of the Bible, everybody is in near unanimous agreement that it was written by Paul, and it was written no later than about A.D. 52, a very early letter of Paul, maybe the first. I delivered to you what was first delivered to me, what I first received. Well, okay, when would Paul have received some teaching? We'll get back to that. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, and then he kind of continues on as we read. Now, Paul, if you know much about, I mean, Paul is a really smart guy, right? He was fluent in at least three different languages. He studied at the temple in Jerusalem to be a Pharisee. He was studied under a guy named Gamaliel. He was really, really smart. He had all the academic credentials of the day. And Paul, when he writes in Greek, it's a very sophisticated form of Greek. And and when you're learning to translate Greek and Hebrew like in seminary or something, you don't start with Paul. (laughs) That's not the starting point. Most of the time you start with John. Because John's Greek was very basic and very simple, and it's a lot easier for a new student to digest, not Paul. But this passage right here in 1 Corinthians 15, you can see very quickly, if you know the, the, the details of Greek and all that, that the, the usage here, this is not the way Paul writes when you read this in the Greek. This is very simple and it is very basic and many scholars believe that what Paul is actually reciting here is a very early creed of the early church. This is a creed. This is a statement we this we believe. Now you think, well, gosh, when would when would Paul have learned that? Well, there's a couple of options, right? I mean, right after his, you know, on the road to Damascus, right after that, remember he was he was there in Damascus for a period of time, and and could have learned it there. And then he goes off, and he's on his own for about 13 years, and then he comes and spends time in Jerusalem with John and with Peter and with James. And so he could have learned it then, which would have been about 12 years after the road to Damascus. But in, in no circumstance is there any, any logical place where Paul would have learned this that is any later than about 15 years after the events happened that it claims to recite. All of which is 20 to 30 years before the earliest date of any of the Gospels. <laughs> so this predates the Gospels by decades. And it blows this whole theory out of the water that in the gospel accounts chronologically, you see this evolving myth of the resurrection that becomes more and more elaborate as it gets further and further away from time. Again, this book never addressed this passage in Corinthians, not one time, not once. <clears throat> and this passage from Corinthians has been established through, you know, ancient manuscripts. Anyway, it's we, I won't go too far down that rabbit hole with you unless you find that fascinating, in which we can have coffee and talk for a long time. It'll be fun. Uh, But suffice it to say, this passage from 1 Corinthians establishes that the very early church, again, within 12 years at the latest of when these events happened, believed that the body of Christ got up out of the tomb after it was dead. Not fainted, not in a coma, dead. This is what the early church believed. It's also interesting to note that in contemporary historical accounts from Jewish historians and from Roman historians, they also note that the early church believed that Christ had been raised from the dead. They also, interestingly failed to say anything about but we all knew where the body was and so nobody thought they had any they had any credibility because the body was right over there. Cuz right if somebody says the dead guy got up out of the out of the tomb, all you've got to do to refute this is produce the body. And then you know, case closed. We have no no more argument because there's the body. And and who but the the Jewish leaders at the time would have loved anything more than to produce the body of Jesus to say, okay, that's about enough, guys. That's about enough. Never happened. Never happened. There's not even any reports of them even trying to make that happen. So we have Jewish and Roman historians verifying that the early church believed this. We have Paul's creed that he's reciting in 1 Corinthians 15 that is no more than 12 to 15 years after the events happened where this is what the early church believed, and it was fundamental to the faith. So don't let anybody tell you that this was some evolving myth and that the early church didn't buy into this, and this is just something all you nutcases have have bought into to just kind of prop up your theology. It's not that at all. This is essential. The bodily resurrection of Jesus was essential in the very first church, and it's essential 2,000 years later today. Because if it didn't happen, as Paul says, we of all men are most to be pitied. Because the cross did not have the power that we think it does if the tomb did not become empty. And by the way, you know, we think it is implausible that the dead come to life, but we also claim to believe that God created something from nothing, right? I mean, that's the whole Genesis story. Could I suggest that if you are capable of producing something from nothing, that that's on the scale of difficult miracles? I'm going to put that one at the, okay, this is the most difficult. There is nothing. I speak and now there is something. I don't mean I'm rearranging somethings to make a new something. I mean, there is nothing and I speak, and now there is something, that is the greatest possible miracle you can pull off. And if you've done that, then what's raising somebody from the dead? I mean, come on. How hard can that possibly be if you can make something appear from nothing? Chew on that one. But this power of the resurrection is not limited to the first church. It's available to us today, just like it was to them at the time. I mean, think about the power what the power of the resurrection did in the early church. We have the apostles, you know, Peter. You know, Scott was just sharing with us about Jesus and Peter, and Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter goes from this guy shaking in his boots in the courtyard, denying Jesus, going, man, I don't know, to standing up in front of thousands in Jerusalem, thousands of Jews there for the Passover saying, you crucified Jesus. And instead of dragging him out and stoning him to death, 3,000 people say, I think I'll follow Jesus today. And, and, And it goes on, right? I mean, Peter all of a sudden becomes the rock that Jesus said he would become. Not because Peter was already a rock, because the power of the resurrection made him that rock. He never got over the the empty tomb and the risen Jesus. It changed him. The power of the resurrection made Peter that rock. The power of the resurrection gave John, this, this uneducated fisherman, the ability to Pin some of the greatest treatises on God's love that we will ever be able to put our hands on. He was an uneducated fisherman. <laughs> he was not Paul with all of Paul's academic credentials. But the power of the resurrection said, I can do this because I understand the love of Jesus because I've experienced it. Later, Centuries later, the power of the resurrection was crucial in abolishing the slave trade, both in the British Empire and here in our own country. It was at the core of the movement to abolish the slave trade was the power of the resurrection. Men and women that had been transformed personally by the power of the resurrection looked around and said, this isn't right. And by the power of the resurrection... That was ended. You don't believe me. You can just go. remember the movie from several years back, Amazing Grace, the story of William Wilberforce in, in England. And if you really want to, I've got this book. You can read the book. It's a lot drier, but it's good. Uh, these the, the power of the resurrection was at the center of making things right. It was what drove these people to do what they did and to take the risks that they did. And in the process of that, there was one individual, a slave trader, who was a captain of a slave ship, back and forth from Africa. I mean, a captain of a slave ship? (laughs) Could you be much more evil than that? And the power of the resurrection got a hold of this guy. And all of a sudden, he was not the captain of a slave ship anymore, and the power of the resurrection drove him to write down words that we all know today. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. John Newton wrote this down. He was a captain of a slave ship, and the power of the resurrection said, not anymore, not anymore. Several years after that, A guy named Horatio Spofford uh, had been a successful lawyer in Chicago in the 1860s and 1870s. In the Chicago fire in 1871, Horatio Spofford uh, lost his entire fortune. He had invested heavily in Chicago real estate, as others did at the time, and now that real estate was worthless. He also lost his son in that fire. A few years later, uh, his (coughs) he and his family are going to go help D.L. Moody on his campaigns in England. And he sends his wife and daughters ahead of him. He's he's trying to rebuild their their family finances. And the ship that they're on, as it's going across the Atlantic, collides with another vessel and sinks rapidly. Only his wife survives. All four daughters taken. She sends him a telegram that's a bit famous. She says... Saved alone. And so Horatio Spofford, on his way across the Atlantic to catch up, (laughs) to catch up with his grieving wife, they lost their son and their fortune in the fire. They lost their daughters at sea. And as as his ship is passing roughly the spot where the ship went down, the power of the resurrection shows up in Horatio Spofford, and he writes these words. I think many of you will find them familiar. When peace like a river attendeth my soul, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. Hmm. Family, that is the power of the resurrection. He has lost everything that is most dear to Him in this world. Lost it. Gone. In unspeakably tragic ways. And he goes on, he says, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. That is the power of the resurrection. That doesn't make sense through any other lens. Name me somebody else that has experienced the loss that Horatio Spofford went through and can write that in all honesty as his ship is going past the spot where his daughters went down in the sea. It is well with my soul. That same power is at at our disposal. The same Jesus that got up out of the tomb that looked at Peter and said, Peter, do you love me? It's the same Jesus that pulls on our hearts and says, do you love me? Do you want to be made whole? Not do you want to be good. <laughs> How hollow would that be? How hollow would that be? But Jesus says, you are broken. John Newton, slave trade captain, you are broken. I can make you whole. And he looked at me one time as I looked at myself in a the mirror. They said, Otto, you are broken, but I can make you whole. That is the hope of the resurrection family. Not that we would become good people or better people. We don't need the resurrection for that. There's all kinds, the, the shelves are full of self-help books. Sadly, a lot of Christian books start to sound like self-help books. Our problem is not that we aren't good enough. Our problem is that we are broken. And only the power of the resurrection can fix that brokenness. And when it does come into our lives and it does begin to fix that brokenness, we can be transformed in ways that we couldn't even have imagined. So, as we close today, I would just invite you, as we are celebrating the season of Eastertide, maybe some of you need to experience the power of the resurrection for the first time. Maybe some of you need to dip from the well again and experience the power of the resurrection again. So, I'll I'll pray for us. But I would invite you to pray along. And I would invite you to just offer yourself to Jesus and say, make the brokenness whole. By the power of your empty tomb, by the power of the resurrection, make the brokenness whole. Jesus, Jesus, We thank you that you did come to solve the ultimate problem that we have. You came to fix our brokenness. You came to set our brokenness right. And as you set us right individually, then we start to set things right around us. And other people can get a taste of the power of your resurrection. Jesus we bring you our brokenness maybe for the first time maybe for the umpteenth time again we bring you our brokenness and we ask you to make it whole by the power of your resurrection make our brokenness whole set it right transform us and help us to never, ever get over it. Forgive us for the times when we have maybe discarded your resurrection as something not necessary, optional, and renew in us that that wonderment like a child we just sit at your feet and go, I cannot believe this is happening. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you that we can love because you first loved us. We thank you that the power that you exhibited when you got out of the tomb is the same power you extend to us today. Jesus' name. Amen.